0: Hello and welcome back to One on One, New York's longest running sports call in show. Along with Manny Benante, I'm Colin Locker and we are pleased to be joined by sports journalist and writer Ed Odovan. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you guys? I'm doing fantastic. Certainly excited to have you on the show. Pleased to have you on the show. Recently, you had a book release going 15 rounds with Jerry Eisenberg. The book highlights many aspects of Jerry's career and illustrates just how unique he truly was. I'm wondering right off the bat, in researching for the project, was there anything in particular that surprised you? Whoa, that's a difficult question off the bat. Uh, I like it. Um, I I guess
1: just um, trying trying to figure out, okay, this is sort of a joke, but it's not really a joke. When did Jerry have time to sleep? Because he had so many projects going on in his heyday. He was writing five or six columns a week for the Newark Star-Ledger. He was doing a bunch of radio shows as a guest and, you know, he hosted his own show in the early 80s. In the 70s, he worked on a Sunday night TV show and wrote, and wrote, um, it was called Sports Extra. And he wrote essays that are sort of like what you would see on Outside the Lines or, or 60 Minutes nowadays. He wrote tons of books. He wrote magazine pieces. He was always working, always traveling. So to try to figure out like when he had downtime and when he had time away from work was, uh, was something I really didn't find.
2: You know, I, I took a look at the book as well, Ed, and I really loved it. And I, it was really taken to me how big Eisenberg has been in sports writing. So mm-hmm. when you're drafting a book like this, he's such a legendary giant. How do you begin the process of compiling and putting into words, how influential that man really is?
1: I, I, that's a, uh, thanks for asking that Maddie. Um, I guess one thing that I I really tried to do was just read as many articles about him that I could find, but there weren't that many, you know, people quote him in their stories because he's such an expert on horse racing and baseball, the NFL, college football and boxing for the most part and other sports. But um, there wasn't a lot of stuff written about him that was long form or that's sort of what sort of um, got me fired up about doing this project was. He was willing to speak to me. He had time, he was semi-retired, and I had his whole career to look back on. So there were, you know, with the advent of the internet, you're gonna get a lot of stories that are certainly from the 90s and, and to this day, but you can also find older stuff that he wrote as well. So it was, re- it was a real joy and, and fascination to go back and read a lot of his earlier work. Uh, some of, it, some of it was through, you know, like a subscription to newspaper archives. Um, that, that sort of helped. I thought that was a good investment in my time and money. Um, but I tried not to read his books extensively. I didn't want it to influence maybe what I how I approached it. I thought maybe it would be a subtle or um, uh, like maybe like influence without me even realizing it. So I really focused more on his newspaper stories and a couple of his magazine pieces uh, when I did the research. And then I spoke to as many people as I could. Um, And so it it ranged different generations of of prominent uh, media media people, which I highlighted quite extensively in part two of the book.
0: Ed, you mentioned Eisenberg's connection to boxing. I'm a huge fan of boxing myself. Mm -hmm. So when I saw the cover of the book, I was greatly intrigued. For those that might not know the cover of the book off the top of their heads, it does picture Jerry playfully jabbing at Muhammad Ali. Here we go. Right there. I love that cover. So I'm wondering, when preparing to write the book, were you able to learn anything about the relationship between Ali and Eisenberg?
1: I I think what I was able to to understand and and develop a bit more in my understanding of, of the relationship was like many people, I I read, I read the obituary column that Jerry wrote in tribute to Muhammad a couple of days after he passed away in June of 2016. So that, that to me has to be the starting point. That's the foundation of understanding the relationship because Jerry in his, in his 80s was extremely articulate and in his early 90s, he still is. He has a great mind, a great memory, a great way with words and, and you know, imagery. And in Ali's later years, uh, he, could bar- you know, he could barely whisper, he could barely speak at all. And his mind had been affected so much by, uh, by getting hit in the head with boxing and Parkinson's. So really I relied on Jerry's um, memories as the starting point. But then what was really cool was the book was, the, the first edition of the book came out in 2020 on Jerry's 90th birthday. Um, that was the plan um, once it became once it sort of like took forever to get, to get the book going, I sort of said to myself, I have to have a real target here. And the pandemic sort of forced me to really focus and get something done. So that was a good thing in a way to have sort of that, that catalyst. Um, I'm, I'm very sad that the, the state of the world, but in this case for me being home a bit more and having a different schedule was a bit of a positive um, opportunity. Sorry. I'm, I was getting off track, but um. When Jerry, in 2016, I was just sort of into the project. I had started it the year before and interviewed Jerry on the phone for the first wave of interviews. And it took three hours, which was his, his appreciative way of saying, you have all the time you need. I'm here, I'm here for you. Uh, we spoke on the phone. Uh, he was not in a hurry to get off the phone. He was very great, great uh, grateful, very kind. Uh, and we, we bounced around from topic to topic. Many of the first, many of those first topics um, were actually like the core of part one, of what became part one of the book. But um, the next year when, when he passed away, when Ali passed away, um, you know, the, the number of people citing Jerry's column or having him on radio shows or TV programs, that was like a, um, that was almost like a college dissertation in, in that friendship. There was so much secondary material that was supporting what Jerry wrote in his column. So what I, what I really learned was the fact that they traveled everywhere together, the accessibility that Ali gave him was based part on his, on the fact he liked to hear his, his himself talk and he had a massive ego and he was a people person, but also he saw in Jerry a kindred spirit, a guy who supported him uh, with his stance on the Vietnam War and with his fight against racism and, uh, you know, their personal issues, they were both married and divorced and they they traveled to Africa together. They traveled all over the boxing world. So, th- you know, th- that was just something I could learn more and more about. Um, it, uh, Ali's sense of humor and Ali's um, uh, uh, charitable efforts. He, You know, those were things that Jerry talked about as well. And, you know, it was admirable that, yes, he was an outspoken, um, he was an outspoken um um like he evangelized for 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 islam and he really spoke about how he thought there were all these contradictions in the bible but you know and he he criticized um the christianity and some of some of the role in christianity and the catholic church and the slave trade but he also he also had a great heart when it came to helping people and jerry jerry mentioned for example the fact that um one time ali uh, donated a um I think it was 25 dollars or $50,000 to, a, uh, to a, a senior citizen's home uh, run, by, um, run by a Jewish community in, in, the, in New York. And he did it without any, you know, any knowledge or any publicity. He wanted to keep it quiet. So, so Jerry kind of like really focused on all different aspects of Ali's life in, in, um, in his writings and just how he spoke about him. He admired the man greatly, but he also pointed out his contradictions The fact that he was a serial womanizer and was married uh, four times and just had, you know, constant affairs, you know, Jerry also pointed that out in his his work.
2: So something I found very interesting, I know how you bring up Muhammad Ali being one influence. I read about Bob Baffert. My family was very into horse racing growing up, so I appreciated Mm -hmm. the anecdote about that. So how do you compact so many of these lives that Eisenberg had touched, been involved with, to really whittle down to what I would call it, sports writing history overall.
1: You know, it it wasn't easy to to narrow down the material, but I guess one thing I tried to keep as a mission statement in my mind was the fact that Jerry had written his own memoir in 2007. So, and he had written a number of books uh, about, you know, there were compilations of columns or like the book, Roselle, which is a biography of, of, of Pete Roselle I didn't want to be mimicking his work or over, um, over uh, or copying it, you know, the, 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 the angle too much. I wanted a kind of a fresh take from Jerry in his late eighties, looking back on his career and what it became that I thought my uncle gave an effective uh, label was he called it an anecdotal biography. So I'm sort of picking and choosing certain topics that he, enjoys talking about or enjoyed writing about. Obviously, he had been to so many Super Bowls and so many uh, Kentucky Derbies and uh, the World Series, and he was a huge baseball fan as a kid, even going back to the old Negro Leagues. Jerry, where he grew up, there was a Negro League team in his backyard. So I tried to focus on unique aspects that were not uh, maybe widely known by a lot of people, and I wanted the book to sort of be uh, part sports history, but also sort of, um, a primer for people maybe interested in journalism as well, that hopefully this book could inspire them a bit. It could maybe give them an angle and an aspect about one of the last living giants of a different era of sports journalism, where people wrote every day, basically. And, you know, he has a connection to Red Smith. He has a connection to people that have been, you know, passed away for 40, 50 years, even longer. Um, But I also wanted um, certain chapters to show his family influence or the influence of his Jewish faith a little bit and his influence and how he approached the civil rights era, how he used that in his writings to to be a champion of equal rights and uh, of justice. I didn't want it to be too much on any one of those things, though. So. I think it sort of worked out where you can have short chapters that are little vignettes and then. What are the quotes that really stood out to Jerry when we were talking, or some of them were done by email as well? How did he sort of look back and recognize distinct moments in his life?
0: Ed, you're somebody who has quite a diverse background in journalism. Could you speak a bit about some of the opportunities that you've been able to take in Japan? Thanks for asking that. Um, I was the sports editor at the Arizona Daily
1: Sun in Flagstaff in 2006 when The Associated Press sports editors uh, job board uh, advertised a position for a basketball beat writer for the Japan Times beat writer and a desk editor, one of the one of the desk editors on the national newspaper. And uh, at that time, the the professional basketball league, which was which was known as the Basketball Japan League or BJ League, uh, was only starting its second was only in, in its first season, actually. And the second season, it started in the fall of 2006. And in the summer of 2006, the World Basketball Championship, uh, you know, organized by FIBA was held in Japan. And the first four rounds of the event were in four different cities for a week at a time. Uh, so looking ahead in, in, the, in the spring, the winter of, that, of 2006, the newspaper, you know, put the job, posted the job ad and was looking to expand the staff and have a full-time person devoted to basketball. And, uh, you know, it intrigued me. I had written a lot of, uh, freelance work on Japanese baseball when I, when I was in the States, uh, going back to my college days at Arizona state, uh, just with the, the spring training facilities near being nearby, I could get out to the cactus league, like usually like once a week. And, um, some of the freelance work devo- was devoted to players like um, Hideki Irabu when I was in, when I was visiting Florida or um, uh, Shigatoshi Hasegawa who retired many years ago. Um, but it sort of helped me develop a clip sheet and a portfolio of, of showing that I had a background in covering Asian sports. Um, so with the opportunity in Japan, uh, I was, I was asked, you know, I, I was asked if I was interested in being a, a desk editor and a writer and you know and really being involved in a high energy outfit um the interview went really well it was actually done on the telephone and my my my, my, my former boss Jack Gallagher and I spoke for a good hour and it was a really positive experience and I, I needed to wait until the visa paperwork was processed uh it might be different now nowadays with the pandemic and other Uh, different rules that might be in place with how they process visas and passports. But, um, so I started in 2006 in, in July, uh, and it was a really great experience from the get-go learning, learning how a national, working at a national newspaper, as opposed to a small uh, county newspaper in a small town in Arizona, Flagstaff, you know, this is a lot, a lot different kind of thing. And, um, so this the this the, the the new the change of scenery was it was a really positive boost for me and really energized me and got me fired up to go to work and um, covered the the world basketball championship that first summer in Japan. I, I spent a week in Hiroshima, uh, not only not only uh, watching a lot of great basketball games involving players like uh, uh, Dirk Nowitzki and uh, the Angolan had Angola had a great team that year. And, uh, this really was kind of like a Cinderella of that opening round. I saw Japan play, um, I saw Spain, and I saw uh, Panama. I saw a bunch of great games in the in the um, the opening round. But also, I would I I try to visit some of the Hiroshima historical sites, including the Peace Museum, and I saw where the atomic I saw where one of the few remaining buildings that you know survived the atomic bombing, and it is a it is a monument. To the impact of the war, so being being around those um, those places also had an impact on me. And learning more about history, you know, right in front and center when you when you leave your hotel that in the morning, for example, you might take a train at you know twenty minutes away, but on the path to the basketball state uh, arena, you're also passing places that you know people everywhere around the world know about. So that was that was quite powerful. Um, I don't want to get too involved in, in giving this early description to your question. Uh, sorry. I've been sort of rattling off here, but uh, the basketball beat was a great um, experience for me on the Japan times. Uh, the league expanded every year for a decade. So that first year I was there, there were eight teams. And by the last year of the league, there was 22, 20, 23, excuse me, 24, 24. And um they there was a merger that took place uh, in in 2016 with an old corporate league and the BJ League. and the current league that now exists is called the B League. but it was a it was a merger that FIBA forced um, but just just to uh, touch upon the opportunity with basketball, there were some really great people involved in the sport who came over here to coach and play uh people people like um people like Bob Hill, former former Knicks, Spurs, Pacers and Sonics coach. He was here he was here 10 11 years ago. Uh, we developed a really nice friendship. Bill Cartwright, former Bulls player and coach. He coached here for one season and his team his team made a complete turnaround in like in like in like a month. It was amazing. They were worst or second worst team in the league and he got them playing great team defense and just night and day they were better than they were and and just getting a chance to be up close and personal, interview these guys, and, and uh, great treat. Um, who else could I mention? Um, there, there's, there have been a lot of European coaches here, a heck of a lot of Division One players, former guys. You guys might know Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, former um, Denver Nuggets player, uh, known as Chris Jackson um, in his LSU days. You know he played here for two years in his early forties and he could still, he could still dribble uh, and stop on a dime and hit a three pointer from anywhere. Lights out shooter. Uh, So great opportunities with basketball. Um, I've covered baseball a little bit on a limited basis, um, but went to the Beijing Olympics and the London Olympics as our our one reporter for the Japan times. Uh, Covered the track and field world championships in 2007 in Osaka. Um, so there've been some great opportunities. Um, last, uh, in 2020, in the spring, I, I stepped away from the Japan Times and accepted a job offer at the website Japan Forward, which, uh, which was started by um, a newspaper called Sankei Shimbun, which is kind of like the Wall Street Journal and how it, how it operates, uh, a real heavy emphasis on business and finance. Um, and and, and Sankei Shimbun wanted to have more of a uh, exposure to the outside world with the English speaking world. So this project was started and I became the first sports editor of the website and uh, we're growing steadily, but slowly, uh, surely I should say.
2: <laughs> you bring up basketball a lot. I thought there was an article that you just did recently about Hachimura and Watanabe recently uh-huh. in the NBA. And besides that, also, it's worthy to bring up Shohei Otani, the numerous award winner in baseball this past year. I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know your opinion on the mentality of the Japanese athletes that have just risen so greatly in American sports and what that kind of mentality differs between the mentality we have in America.
1: Are you referring especially to the current athletes, let's say the last five, 10 years or even even more like 20, 30, 40 years ago?
2: As far back as you want to go.
1: Well, um, let's give one example of um, Sadahara O. For pro baseball, he is the all-time home run king. 868 home runs. He played for the Yomiuri Giants for his entire career, 1959 to 1980. And, you know, he was so prolific with his swing, so precise with his workouts that he would practice with a sword, like swinging and like cutting – cutting a thin piece of paper to like the precise angle that he wanted his bat to you know to like go over the um the orbit or the path of the, of the of the of the of the um home plate he would sit at his house and it was like clockwork where he would swing and do it thousands of times so there is a a mentality about work that the path the pursuit of perfection is a big deal in the mentality of japanese athletes In many cases, the coaches do not treat it like work, like, sorry, they don't feel like play or fun. A sport is work. It's your job. You got to practice until you like, you like pass out, you know, like there's these famous gut throws in baseball where you're hit, you're hit a thousand ground balls and you know, like in a single, you're the, you're an infielder and you're, you're standing there and you're not going to, you're not going to take a water break. You're not going to, you're not going to sit down and uh, you know, um, Talk about your weekend barbecue with your friends you're there to work you're there to you're there to perfect your craft and in this era of, of the of globalization and of players being able to get posted and and, and go overseas to play uh, I'm, I'm referring to baseball here but there is some individualism involved. players have more of a uh, individual personality that they might showcase through social media and through different, 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 um, media opportunities, like uh, Otani's got a, he's got a fun personality. Um, he he's, he, but he's very humble, isn't he? He's always talking about, he's had one good season, he says in the major league baseball. So he has so many awards this past uh, year, but, um, he, he seems hungrier than ever. And I think that sort of applies to Hachimura and Watanabe as well. They, they, of course, have not been named MVP of the NBA, but even this past week when uh, when Hachimura and Watanabe played against each other you know Watanabe focused on two things in his comments uh, one it was cool and it was cool to be playing against Hachimura and it was a you know a, a great opportunity for both of them uh, to do it for the nation for Japan and the second thing was he wants to earn more playing time that is first and foremost his main focus so you might hear about players in the, in the States uh, focused on getting new shoe contracts or, or getting a bigger contract. All those things are nice, but these guys are focused on getting playing time. So I think
0: there's more of a, generally speaking, a humble approach to the professional sports. Ed Odevin, be sure to check out his new book, Going 15 Rounds with Jerry Eisenberg. Ed, we thank you so much for coming on the show, and we were pleased to have you. Thank you again for your time.
1: Thank you very much, guys. I I really enjoyed our conversation.